Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 183. In this episode, we're talking about the Bible versus biblical womanhood with Dr. Philip Payne. Dr. Philip Payne is the author of a number of studies on the Bible's teaching about women in ministry, including the new book that we're excited to discuss in this episode, The Bible Versus Biblical Womanhood, How God's Word Consistently Affirms Gender Equality, published by Zondervan. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Madison Pierce, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So it was lovely to have Dr. Payne on this episode with us to talk about his research on women in ministry, women in in leadership roles in the church, which is a uh, passion of his. He's he's published a number of articles and books on this topic and just brings a rich wealth of of knowledge about about the topic, including a lot of detail about the Greek and the the manuscripts. And so there's just a lot of great information in this episode that may be surprising uh, to a lot of our listeners. And I hope it will be uh, of of interest and and encouraging to uh, everyone who hears it. Uh, Madison and Chris, what were some takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Payne? Um, As you said, there's just so much detail there in what he shares. Um, I I really loved this conversation because Dr. Payne's work um, was really central for me. Um, I had already sort of changed my mind about women in leadership, but I felt like this gave me a resource to be able to send people to that summarized a lot of of my views on these passages. Um, And I think his reading of um, 1 Timothy Timothy 3 and the elders stuff is just so compelling. Um, And he recapped it really clearly in this episode, I think. Yeah, I really appreciate not only his in-depth technical and textual work, but his real passion for uh, the pastoral impact of, of the work uh, and and his real pastoral heart. Um, many times throughout this interview, he uh, gets quite passionate about uh, the impact of, um, of interpretations uh, on, the ter- on the church and indeed on his own life. It's a wonderful conversation that we've been able to have with him. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Philip Payne. Well, Dr. Payne, thanks so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. So we're really excited to talk about your book, The Bible Versus Biblical Womanhood. How about we begin by just hearing a little bit about what sets this book apart from some of the other studies that you've done on women in ministry? Uh, This book is a book designed for people who've never taken a course in Greek or theology. Uh, They've got questions but they don't have uh, ability to read Greek letters or Hebrew letters. It's, it's written to be easily understood by anyone. At the recent symposium on women in leadership, uh, after I gave my presentation, a group of seven high school students came down and I asked them, did you understand everything I said? And in unison, they said, yes. So uh, the book puts the cookies on the lower shelf. It's designed for people who want to understand the issues, to uh, not have to read a huge amount to get to the point. Um, It's, uh, judging by responses, it succeeded in that. In addition, uh, it raises a number of issues that I discovered after the Man and Woman One in Christ book, uh, about 1 Peter, about Titus 2, uh, and many, many other things that, uh, including the First Corinthians 14 text critical issue. So uh, it's updated and uh, I think a wonderful place to begin. If someone wants more detail, all the reasons for a judgment, then man and woman, one in Christ is very helpful. But the, uh, the Bible versus biblical womanhood is clear, direct, easy to follow and the choice for most people. 
I read Man and Woman, Born in Christ, and have recommended it and passed it on. Um, my copy has been uh, not on my shelf more than it's been on my shelf, I think, because I've lent it so often. Um, it's a great book. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate is that you um, provided for me this very exegetical discussion of these topics. And at least at the time that I encountered it, there were fewer of those resources available. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your particular approach and your hermeneutic of or in approaching these topics. So why the exegetical case? You know, why does that appeal to you? And why do you feel like that's the best way through this issue? Well, that actually uh, addresses uh, not just the hermeneutical question, but the question of faith. Because for me, uh, the truth of scripture is vitally important. Uh, growing up, I was in a church that uh, had all male leadership. And, uh, but for me, the, the, the searing question was, am I a Christian? And how can I know if I'm a Christian? And when I die, will I go to heaven? This was the big issue. And it was complicated because I was the president of the youth group. And it's hard to admit you don't know if you're a Christian in that position. Uh, Fortunately, I was able to attend a summer Bible camp in Mount Hermon, California. And at Redwood Camp, I began to trust my counselor. And one day I saw him out on the meadow and I went and said, uh, I don't know if I'm a Christian. How can I know? And he said, uh, here, read this. And when I looked at it, my I just thought, oh, no, it's John 3.16, the oldest one in the book. And he said, read it. And I read it. And he said, Phil, do you believe in Jesus? I said, well, sure, I believe in Jesus. Do you have eternal life? I don't know. That's the problem. And he said, read it again. And I read it again. Same two questions, same two answers. Read it again. This time, something dawned on me that I'd never noticed before. And that is that uh, God is making a promise. Uh, whoever believes in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. And when I realized that this is God's promise, and I've been saying, I don't know, I'm calling God a liar. So I got on my knees and said, God, forgive me. I know that you're not a liar. And my heart was flooded with a joy of assurance that I'd never had before. And it's never left me since because it's rooted in the truth of God's word. So to me, the truth of God's word is central. And so when, uh, when I was beginning my PhD studies at Cambridge, a uh, lecturer made the statement that there is no passage in the New Testament properly understood in its original context that limits the ministry of women. I almost stood up and shouted, that's not true, because I was thinking, 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So I determined I am going to get my ducks in a row, so if anyone ever says that again, I can prove them wrong. And so that night, I went home and read 1 Timothy in Greek. And I noticed a whole bunch of things I'd never noticed before. So the next night I read it again, and the next night, and I, for over a month, I kept reading it. And each time I saw that first paragraph of the letter about the false teachers, virtually every sentence in the letter is related to one of the issues in that first paragraph. And all of the yous that I was used to thinking of how you conduct yourself in the church is sort of general rules. They're all second person singular. You, Timothy, here's what you're to do in this situation. And uh, then I noticed chapter five, all these statements about women who had followed after Satan, were going about from house to house, saying things they ought not. Uh, they're described as fluoroi, uh, conveying foolish philosophy. Well, in that, and there's nothing in the letter where the false teachers are 
deceiving any men that are being duped by this. The only ones that are mentioned are women. Well, in that situation, it would make perfect sense for Paul to limit teaching by women. So then I began to look at other passages. And one by one, I realized I have gotten this wrong. I have read into these passages uh, a, a universal prohibition of women, which is not required by the context. Well, this went on for some time, and I was in Japan as a missionary with the Evangelical Free Church, and uh, people were asking me all this stuff. And I didn't want to cause division in the church. And uh, I was afraid that if I publish what I found, it's going to cause division. So I prayed, God, if you want me to publish this, you've got to make it really clear. Because I don't like getting into fights. Um, within 24 hours, the president of the Evangelical Free Church contacted me and said, I'd like you to write up what you found about women. And the chairman of the Ministerial Association, Association said, uh, we need a position paper on this issue. Would you please write one? And someone gave me a copy of the Trinity Journal in which Doug Moo wrote that women by their created nature are incapable of teaching. I thought, oh my, uh, Lori, you have spoken. So I then responded that my response was published in Trinity Journal and the rest is, is history. It's just gone from one to another. Um, and it's not just that I experienced things that may have been coincidences at that time, but the responses I've heard from hundreds of people saying, what you have written has transformed me. I am in the ministry and God's blessing it because I read your book. Uh, and the many scholars who, from an academic point of view, have said, I endorse what you found. So uh, I really believe that was God's guidance. So when I come to scripture, I want to know what was the intention of the author? What was Paul intending those recipients uh, to hear? Uh, and what was the Holy Spirit inspiring them to teach? What's the message being conveyed? And to learn that, you look at the historical context, you look at the literary context, you see how it all hangs together, and you try to understand it from a sympathetic point of view. Uh, when, For instance, when people read uh, the works of Josephus, and they read the Testimonium Flavium, where uh, we have the statement, um, Jesus is the Christ. Well, I don't know of a single scholar that believes that because uh, Origen said that uh, Josephus did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. So, uh, and yet people come to 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, and here's Paul who in Romans 16 affirms by name 10 people as his uh, fellow workers in ministry, and seven of them are women. Uh, and then in chapter 11 of the same book, he gives rules for how women are to prophesy. And then chapter 14 says that women keep silence in the churches. And yet people read that, and instead of the same people that look at Josephus and say, the, the testimony of Flavium cannot possibly be by Jesus, because we know that's not what he believed. Now they come to this passage and say, well, of course it's by, uh, it's by Paul, uh, and now let's reconcile it. And how do we reconcile it? Well, even though he says three times with no qualification that women be silenced in the churches, they are not permitted to speak, it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. Uh, he must not mean that. He must mean something else. And so uh, they interpret as saying the only thing that Paul was prohibiting was judging prophecies, where the only thing he was uh, prohibiting was disruptive speech. But then, if that is true, then verse 34 permits speech that is not judging prophecies. It permits speech 
that is not disruptive. Uh, it only prohibits disruptive speech. But verse 34, if that is permitting that, verse 35 prohibits what verse 34 permitted. Because verse 35 says, even if a married woman out of a desire to learn wants to ask a question, then uh, you got to do it at home. You can't do it in the church. This is, uh, when you're asking a question out of a desire to learn, you're coming from below admitting, I don't know the answer. I'm desiring to learn. If you're judging a prophecy, you're coming from above. So uh, it can't mean what almost all the complementarians say it means, because then Paul permits in verse 34 what he prohibits in verse 35. And how can you affirm inerrancy if you have this kind of contradiction that close together? Um, so it was only after I had tried to defend a whole bunch of different positions, uh, assuming that Paul wrote this passage, that I seriously looked at the text critical issue. And I found that there are seven external manuscript reasons and nine internal reasons that uh, it just doesn't fit as Paul's teaching. Uh, and if you approach it in the same way scholars approach Josephus, then you don't begin by assuming Paul wrote this. Uh, you, you instead look at the data. And what I found is there's a symbol in our oldest Bible in Greek uh, called Codex Vaticanus, uh, written in 325 to 350 AD. Uh, but there's a symbol that occurs 16 times in the New Testament. And it consists of a long bar and two dots. And every time this long bar that sticks out in the margin with two dots uh, occurs in Vaticanus, on that line, there is a four or more consecutive word addition to the text in some manuscripts. Every case. Well, this occurs only once every 83.5 lines of Vaticanus text. If it were not um, a symbol of a multi-word addition to the text, uh, what are the odds that all 16 times this symbol occurs, it would coincide with something that occurs only once every 83.5 times? Well, all of the critics who rejected my argument have said it's mere coincidence. Well, you know how likely it is that you would randomly pick 16 lines or even 15 lines and that every one of them uh, would coincide with a four or more consecutive word addition to the text? The odds of that happening are so uh, rare that if you were to choose every second for 100 trillion years, uh, 15 different lines, the odds that in any of those searches, you would get uh, all 15 coinciding with a four or more word consecutive edition is less than one in 2000. Then this is not, this is not coincidence. Uh, the way you identify a text critical symbol is when you identify a pattern and the pattern recurs. And when you find another one, it recurs again. Uh, and this is a perfect uh, incidence. The, some people say, but wait, uh, that must have been an extraordinarily early addition to the text for it to, to, because it, it appears in all the manuscripts. Well, actually, it depends how you define a manuscript, because whenever a manuscript has a correction, that manuscript has two different readings. And uh, you can have a manuscript with several different readings of the same text on the same vellum. Uh, and from text critical point of view, they're regarded as separate manuscripts. Well, here's Codex Vaticanus. Uh, and by the way, it's not just 
that all 15 of these coincide somewhere on the line with the text being interrupted with a multi-word addition. Every one of the original one by the original scribe have a gap in the text at the precise point that the four more consecutive word addition begins. So how likely is that to happen? Uh, the, by the way, can we trust this scribe? My answer is yes. First of all, if you look at both the Nestle Elan and the UBS standard text, they agree with the original scribe of Vaticanus in 15 out of 16 times. Now, if, if you compare the Byzantine text, 12 out of the 16, the Byzantine text either includes all or part of the multi-word edition that Vaticanus marks as a later edition. So the Byzantine text tends to preserve these editions. And, and we understand why. Uh, no one wants to take away from scripture. And if you're a scribe and you're copying a text, you're not going to take something out. Uh, in the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, there are accents. Uh, there can only be one accent on a given Hebrew letter. But there are many times in the Ten Commandments when there are two accents on the same letter. And the reason is some manuscripts had one accent, some had another one. So what does a scribe do? The scribe wrote them both because he didn't want to take away from Scripture. So once something gets added, it's very unlikely to be taken away. Well, I was saying, some scholars say uh, this would have to be extraordinarily early to be in all the manuscripts. And my first answer was, well, it, it's in the manuscript, but it's not supported by the manuscript. The Vaticanus marks it as a spurious edition. Bishop Victor rewrites the text of Codex Valensis, omitting 34 and 35. Manuscript 88 is copied from a manuscript that didn't have it there, but then the scribe added it in and put arrows saying it should be back here. But we know his manuscript didn't have it because, I shouldn't say his manuscript, because Origen said he preferred girls trained in penmanship. So many of these scribes were women. In fact, Melania was given the prize as the most beautiful calligraphy of her era. So uh, we don't know if these scribes were men or women. But in any event, you have these different manuscripts. But look at what happened in Ephesians chapter 5. All of the earliest manuscripts in the church fathers that quote the passage have in verse uh, 21, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. And the next verse continues the sentence, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, if you look at your English translation, chances are they've broken the sentence into two separate paragraphs. And the sentence, they've added the verb submit. But submit is not in the earliest manuscripts. It's not in a whole bunch of church fathers. Um, but in fact, the very first manuscript the verb submit appears in is Codex Sinaiticus, uh, written roughly 360 AD. Now, but every manuscript after Codex Sinaiticus includes the verb submit. No New Testament manuscripts before 360 include it. Everyone after it includes it. You see, once it's in the text, no scribe is going to take it out. And if the scribe sees two texts, the scribe would take the one that includes it. The, another example of the preference to not take away from the text is in the prophetic books of the Septuagint, the Old Testament, in Codex Vaticanus, there are 121 oboloi, that's the horizontal bar shape, which means a mark of spurious text. And uh, that was what Origen used to mark where the Septuagint added words that were not in the Hebrew Masoretic text. Uh, and there's another symbol called an asterisk. Uh, it's a square with a dot in each quadrant. And that is when there were words in the Hebrew that the Septuagint 
did not include in their translation. There are 121 oboloi marking where a text was added. There are only 12 asterisks marking where a text was taken away. So which is more common? It's more common to add the text. And once it's added, it stays in. My point is that because the verb submit was added uh, in Codex Sinaiticus, and no manuscript has survived after that point that didn't take it out. I mean, zero out of all the thousands of manuscripts, zero, none of them take it out. So how likely is it that all of the earliest manuscripts took it out? It's pretty unlikely. So my point is that you can have a change in the text influencing the whole textual tradition very quickly. The very first reference to the uh, silencing of women uh, is dated about 197 AD by Tertullian. Uh, there is nothing before then. No manuscript has it. No church father refers to it. That is, that's the very first. So any manuscript, any reader of a manuscript could have written 34 and 35 in the margin and it be it could explain all the surviving evidence. So I've, I've gone on for a long time, so I don't, I don't want to take away too much on this one. Uh, the, if you get a chance to read the book, uh, I think you'll enjoy that. Thanks so much, Philip. And, and what a wonderful introduction to the book and, and to your own story in engaging with uh, scripture and, you, and your love of doing so. Um, one of the things I'm interested in is just to rewind back, you mentioned that you hesitated publishing uh, your research because you didn't want to cause division in the church. You, you really had a conscience for, for people's hearts. Um, interested, though, why do you think at this point has become such a shibboleth for the church, especially given that many of the fathers don't mention it whatsoever, um, but it is something that is a shibboleth within the church. It is something that does cause division. Um, and it is something that causes division in both directions, uh, in both in a positive sense uh, and in a, in a negative sense, um, either, either or on, on this issue. What do you think gives it such primacy and, and uh, tractability within our church? Well, the... Um... You're raising a question, when you ever have a, an issue of division, the question comes, how important is this issue? And uh, for a complementarian, the answer is, it's important because God's word teaches it. Well, I have looked at, I started my research trying to defend that position. And every passage I thought supported that position, I now believe does not support that position. And it's not because I tried to make the passage fit. Uh, it's because the data of the text of the Bible itself forced me to change my position, even though I had to eat humble pie. And uh, I was so pleased when I heard the pastor of Saddleback Church say uh, that he was so sorry that he waited so long to research this issue. And when he did research it, he found he had been mistaken all this time. And so he, he pleads uh, for forgiveness for all these people who've been hurt by it. Let me give you an example. In the church, there were millions of Christians who decided not to speak out against slavery because it would divide the church. Today, the church is virtually unanimous in its statement that slavery is wrong. It contradicts the principles of scripture, and we repent of our former support of slavery. How did that happen? People looked at the principles of scripture and they realized I was reading 
the historical is as the ethical ought. Uh, describing slavery was simply, this is what Greek society was like. Uh, there was a very large percentage, it depends on the scholar, but between 25 and 45% of the Hellenistic world were slaves. Uh, this was the reality of life in that, and it's, it's what it's described. But in the church, you have bishops who are called Onesimus. Onesimus means useful. It's, it's the name of a, a, a slave. Uh, but these were leaders in the church. The, since the church realized that to support slavery was to support oppression and injustice, then they realized it's so clear that God is against oppression. We cannot do this. Well, I would say the basic principles of scripture reinforce the justice, not just for slaves, but for women. When you have a church structure, which excludes women by definition from positions of authority in the church, uh, that is by definition a, a gender hierarchy. By definition, the men have the authority, which means women are excluded from authority. And yet, when you read the Gospels, when you, you see Jesus uh, reaching out to women and teaching women and giving women key positions and evangelism and so forth, and by teaching them the great truths that we hold dear. And when you look at Paul's writings, you see his affirmations of women and his affirmations of the Spirit of God gifts every believer, not just the males. They're not, the teaching gift is not only for males. There are lots of references to women teaching. Uh, the, in Titus chapter 2, uh, Paul gives the command to female elders. And he says that you are doing the work of the temple. And you are to be kalodidoskalos. You are to be teachers of what is beautiful. Uh, and he claims a word that occurs nowhere else in Greek literature and applies it to women elders. Be teachers of what is beautiful. Uh, he goes on to say, here are examples of what you teach to the younger women. But he doesn't say the audience is only younger women. In Second uh, Timothy, he tells Timothy, remember your mother Lois and your grandmother Eunice, from whom you learn the scriptures. And it never says that he stopped learning when he got to a certain age. Uh, the implication is they are your source. In, in or the passage we use, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is preceded by, you know from whom you learn them, and that's Lois and Eunice. So uh, we have these affirmations of women teachers throughout the New Testament and commands to believers, to all believers, to teach, to admonish one another, to prophesy. And there's, there's no gender restriction here. So just like with slavery, you have a whole complex of basic principles of scripture that in order to exclude women, you have to say that God can't do that. The very thing that the scriptures say that God did do again and again. Uh, so if this is a justice, and it's not just justice, but it's evangelism. If you have half the church who are prohibited from preaching and teaching and prophesying, I mean, that's going to affect the evangelism. When I was a missionary in Japan, there were so many women missionaries who came to me and said, I feel God is leading me into a teaching ministry. 
And my pastors in Japan are saying, teach, we want you to teach. And, and yet I, I've grown up thinking that women can't do that. And I've got this spiritual tension. And yet I believe God has gifted me to do this. The gifts are being recognized by others. I am being told by the church leadership to do it. Is it okay? And I would go through these passages and they were just uh, flooded with relief. I can do this. I can do this in agreement with scripture. So that's a wonderful question. Uh, and I would say to those people who still exclude women, who will not let a woman stand in the pulpit, uh, where does the Bible say women can't stand before a pulpit? I mean, they were house churches. Uh, the leadership was people sharing. You read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and you get a picture of worship where everyone is invited to and commanded to give a teaching, give an encouragement, uh, give a prophecy. Uh, and this is the all believers are to be contributing. So I think it's a vitally important issue. Uh, evangelism, and it's not just that. There have been millions upon millions just in America of women who have left the church over this issue. And there are tens of millions of people who hate the Bible and who hate Paul because they believe that he was a misogynist. And yet here is Paul, who is probably the most articulate defender of the equality of men and women of all of Hellenistic society. Uh, you name one other passage from Greek literature where you have an open society and someone affirms seven out of 10 of the leaders by name and they're women and the, the three men uh, that are listed are listed uh, with their <laughs> with their wife also named as a leader. So, and of course, Priscilla and Aquila uh, in Acts, when they took uh, Apollos aside, and Apollos was a preacher, he was a dynamic preacher, and it says, it, Paul introduces the couple in chapter 18, Aquila, the man, and Prisca. But uh, in, and then he goes on, and, and Luke as well in chap chapter 18 of Acts, uh, he introduces Aquila with listing Aquila's name first and Priscilla. But when they talk about their ministry, when they took Apollos aside, it says Priscilla, her name first, and Aquila instructed him in the way of the Lord more adequately. Well, that's contrary to Greek convention. Greek convention, you list the husband's name first. The only case when you wouldn't do that is if the, if the woman has a very high social standing, and so she's put first. But the fact that she's in, they're introduced as a couple with his name first means that couldn't be the case. So it's her prominence in the role that explains why the Greek convention is broken and her name is put first. In fact, in every passage in Luke or Paul where you have ministry involved, Priscilla's name is listed first, and then Aquila. So, and here specifically in a matter of instruction of a church leader. Thank, thank you so much, Philip, um, for your insightful, uh, um, your insightful analysis of the church situation and and the, the impact uh, that this has had. Um, one of the things I just wanted to pick up on is you made, you noted that many women in the mission field have commented that they feel uh, that they've been asked to, to engage in pulpit-based or word-based ministry and often actually authorized by their sending denominations to do so. Uh, and I wonder if that actually re uh, reflects a sort of incipient um, power dynamic where white women, often white from the West, are seen as 
uh, higher than uh, those who they are ministering to. Um, certainly, that is that was the case uh, in with many women who are ministering in East Africa over the years. Yeah, there's a definite disharmony here, where uh, and I've seen this in, in talking to missionaries in Japan, where in Japan they would teach men and it was welcomed without question, but they teach men in the states. And this is terrible. You can't do that. So you have this cultural uh, supremacy that the, the Western missionary is above and can have authority over the national men, whether it's a man or a woman, uh, but come back to the States. And this, this feeling of cultural superiority is inherent in that, and there's an inconsistency. When, when we see that we are being inconsistent, we need to ask ourselves, am I honestly dealing with scripture? And the fact is that although there are people who say that there is a masculine feel to the gospel, the reason there's a masculine feel of the gospel is because people have mistranslated the Greek to give it a masculine feel when it doesn't have a masculine feel that's there. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, and in Titus chapter 1, you have the qualifications for overseers and elders. And if you pick up an English version, like the NIV, you'll find 11 masculine pronouns. Uh, uh, you look at Titus, and you see all these masculine pronouns. You look at the Greek, there's not a single he, him, or his in the Greek in the whole section of qualifications for overseers. All of those have been added. And the, it's introduced by Paul saying, whoever aspires to the office of overseer desires a noble task. That's what the text says. And whoever is atis. And every time atis occurs in the Greek New Testament, it includes women. There's no case where it excludes women. So you have, and the same atis occurs in Titus. And whoever desires to be an elder must be, and then the uh, qualifications. So, but I looked at the Bible Gateway, and it has these 50-some different translations. 30 of them have whatever man desires the also overseer, he must be. Uh, there's no man in the text. There's no he in the text. That's been added. Now, some people say, and I would say, there is nothing in the entire list of qualifications that excludes women from either overseer or elder. And some raise their hands, oh, no, 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 oh, it's man of one woman. How can a woman be a man? Therefore, a woman cannot be an overseer. You, you need to remember that in Greek, there are two ways of conveying the fidelity in marriage. One is man of one woman, like in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. The other is woman of one man, as in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the qualifications for who will be supported as a widow in the church. Well, widows are by definition women, and so it uses the woman of one man. But whenever you're referring to a group of people that's going to include at least a man uh, in the whole group, gr Greek grammatical convention demands that you use the masculine form. Now you might ask, well, how big, how important is this? How common is it in Greek to use masculine forms when women are included? Uh, Tim Freiberg, who is a complementarian, uh, made, uh, I gave Tim a list of 20 cases where you got masculine forms that must include women. And I said, Tim, this has got to be common. Please check it out. You've written the book on grammatical tags and for the entire New Testament. Uh, so he went through 
the entire New Testament twice and counted between 7,500 and 8,000 cases where there's grammatical masculine form that either must include women or could include women. That's almost one per verse in the New Testament. It's extraordinarily common. So when Paul is giving the qualifications for elder and overseer, and he can't say woman of one man because that would exclude men. He had to use the man of one. In Greek, there is no spouse of one spouse expression. So he didn't have that option. And we know that that was the way that Greeks understood it because even John Chrysostom, who wrote that women are inferior to men and oppose women in leadership, he wrote in his uh, homily on 1 Timothy chapter 3 that man of one woman also applies to women deacons. So he understood that the idiom is not one that excludes, but the, the form that you would normally use to include women as well. So if someone who is uh, a, <clears throat> a patriarchal proponent like Chrysostom acknowledges that this idiom, man of one woman, also applies to women, then in it, that cannot be properly used to exclude uh, women from the office. The, you can look at it another way as well. And that is when you have an idiom, the idiom is a cluster of words that conveys an idea. A man of one woman, none of those words means faithful. But together they convey the idea of fidelity. And that's why tombstones refer to this person as being a woman of one man, uh, because she was faithful to him. It's, it's the kind of thing you say in praise for a, a life well lived. You can't, when you have a qualification that uses an idiom, man of one woman, it is not proper to take one word of that idiom, extract it from the idiom, and make it a separate universal requirement. So you take the word man out of man and one woman and say, okay, elders must be a man. That's illegitimate argument. You cannot do that. And prominent complementarian leaders, including Doug Moo, acknowledge that it does not exclude women. When you come back to the text and you, when you have a translation of the text that doesn't put into it limitations, then people read that and they don't get this male uh, feel at all. Uh, they see it as an open invitation. Thank you so much, Philip. I really appreciate um, just all the information that you've given. And I feel like you've given such a good taste of so many of the arguments in this book and in the previous one. So up, up until now, um, I've generally been in contexts that were either complementarian, and that's a big part of my story, um, or I've been in contexts where it's kind of, you know, agree to disagree, like, you know, faculties that um, where people are on either side of, of this issue. And what I found is that someone's position doesn't always make a difference in how well or poorly they support women. I have people in my life who technically have a, a rather restrictive view on what women can do in the church um, and yet have been among my champions um, in my career, even in my ministry. Um, on the other hand, I've had people who on paper would say, I'm for women doing everything. And yet in practice, um, they are functionally um, worse. Uh, they're functionally um, quite restrictive. Um, 
So I just I wonder um, as you as we sort of move beyond the exegetical arguments, um, though I think those are so important. What are some of the ways that you would advocate that we support women in our churches well and make sure that we're not just functionally egalitarian? We get back to the central command of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Are we acting in love? Uh, that is the center, central issue. Um, the I There are many believers who affirm the equal rights of men and women to do anything in the church, but when it comes to marriage, uh, then the man wants the final say. I grew up in a home where my father was the head of the family. We'd have our family discussion, and the five children had their vote, mom had her vote, and dad had seven votes. <laughs> His, uh, ultimately, he did what he wanted to do. And it actually worked out very well because dad was a really loving guy. He had a song for every occasion, and he was utterly brilliant. Uh, my dad taught Old Testament at Princeton in Semitic languages. Uh, he uh, knew all the Semitic languages well. When he'd read his Hebrew Bible every day in our devotions, we'd get a fresh translation, and I never heard him stumble over a single word of Hebrew ever in any devotional time. I never heard him stumble over a single Greek word, reading through the Greek New Testament, giving fresh translations every day, twice a day. Uh, Dad was an amazing person. And it was fun because he took us on all kinds of adventures and I could spend the, the next 24 hours praising my dad. But dad uh, was also uh, a strong believer uh, that he was the head of the house. And he had the authority to do what he wanted to do. I didn't realize how important that was until uh, dad visited us while we were missionaries in Japan. And uh, he had been speaking in seminaries in India and in the Philippines and in Korea and in Taiwan and in Japan. And while he was in Japan, he was determined to, to hike to the top of Mount Fuji. He'd climb Mount Olympus and Mount Whitney and all kinds of other mountains. And he wanted to climb Mount Fuji. Uh, the day, the only day that he was free to do that was the day we were moving from Tokyo down to Kyoto. And that day it was raining and miserable. And mom pleaded with dad and said, Barton, don't go. And dad said, I won't cause any trouble. Uh, I am going to go. So he said, at the head of the household, he felt he had that authority uh, and he didn't have to submit to his wife. Well, when we got down to Kyoto, on the day he was supposed to arrive, he didn't arrive. And so I called up and seminary people that he'd been teaching came to Mount Fuji and we searched uh, for him, still no contact. <clears throat> and one day uh, the lead hiker got a cramp high up on the mountain. And because of the cramp, all the other people in the search party spread out. And it was at that point, because of that cramp, that they found dad's body. And I had to carry my beloved father down Mount Fuji. Uh, I lost the greatest dad you could have. And the church lost one of his most brilliant scholars at age 56, because as head of the household, he believed that he did not need to submit to his wife. This is not a little thing. And some people say, uh, yeah, but there are times when you've got to make a decision. Someone's got to make the decision. Uh, and so why shouldn't it be the father? Well, I have talked to 
hundreds of mature believing Christians and ask them the question, has there ever been a time in your life when someone had to make the decision and none of them have been able to identify a single case where that had to happen? This is not, not common. And if you look at Ananias and Sapphira, well, was Ananias right in supporting Sapphira's decision? Well, based on God's judgment, I don't think so. So this is, this is an important issue, not just in the church, but in our lives and in the lives of families. When you have a structure where the uh, father has the authority to make the final decision and the wife does not have agency that corresponds, uh, this is not an equal, it's, it's not conducive to spiritual maturity. Spirit, we should all be looking to God for how does God guide us? And we should all be submitting to the other out of love for the other. So I, I'd always read First Peter uh, as talking about uh, the, uh, the instructions for wives submit to your husbands. And then it says husbands, and you read the various translations, it, and, and they don't use the word submit. They substitute another word that is not in the Greek. Well, you look in the Greek, and there's a pattern. It says submit to the governing authorities. Slaves, submit to your masters. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, and then there's no verb. Well, the, the rule is, when you have a pattern of the same verb used all along, it says, in the same way, husbands, well, the verb you put in there is submit. And then he says, submit to your wives. So husbands, submit to your own wives. Now, that's the natural reading of the text. Uh, I was reading Selwyn, the old commentator, in, in reading this passage, it's necessary uh, to insert, here it is. We have to insert the verb submit. But of course, we know that husbands have authority, and so the nature of submission must be somewhat different in this case. But he admits that grammatically that's what's required. Uh, and Peter Davids has argued very carefully that uh, this is the meaning here. And so in, when you have an Ephesians submitting one to another, Wives to your own husbands. And then it goes on and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Is that not submitting? If, you, if you're giving your life for your wife, that, that's, if anything, a higher level. <clears throat> but some people say Christ is the model only for the husband. That's not true because the very same chapter, verse 1, says, a walk in love, and he's talking to the entire church, walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Identical words to the ones of the husband, absolutely identical, applied to the entire church. Christ is the model for all of us. Thank you for sharing that story about your dad, um, Dr. Payne. I'm so sorry. Oh, I, there have been so many times when I wished I could have asked him a question. Because yes. he had uh, he had this wealth of understanding, and to him it was just obvious from the Old Testament women leaders like Huldah and Deborah that women could be in leadership. There's, there's just no question about that. Uh, the <clears throat> one other thing I'd like to make a point on because I think it's so important, and that is. When we read our English Bible and we read the word head, we think of it in the terms of the head of the company. Uh, who is the head of the company? The head is the boss, the leader, the one with authority. And so we say, uh, Christ is head of the church. And we think, oh, well, this is about Christ being the head of the boss of the church. But it says, he, the head of the church, and then with emphatic apposition explaining what head means, he, Savior of the church, Christ, Savior of the church, he, uh, Christ, the head of the church, he, the Savior of the body. They have this Christ, he, 
head, savior, uh, the, the body, the church. Uh, he defines head not in terms of authority, but as savior. And then he goes on to say, what did Christ do as savior? He gave his life for the church. Well, that's what brought the church into being. And if you, if you see back in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, the statement that uh, Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of woman, of the Godhead, Hotheos, is the head of Christ. When we read that in English with an English translation, we read the word head as authority. But that's not the way any of the church fathers understood it. it uh, they, they almost all state very clearly, print this <clears throat> here, uh, Cyril of Alexandria. The source of man is the creator God, source our king. Thus we say that the head of every man is Christ, for man was made through him and brought into existence. And the head, kephale, of woman is the man because she was taken out of his flesh and so indeed has him as her source. Similarly, the head of Christ is God because he is from him according to nature, for the word was begotten out of God the Father. And you have the same thing in Eusebius, Theodore of Mopsvestia, Athanasius, Ambrosiaster, Cosmos Indusplistus, Photius, Theodoret, and Theophylact. Now, this is, they understood that this passage is all about source. Uh, the translation to convey the meaning in English is Christ is a source of every man. Chapter 8, verse 6 says, God created all things through the Son. Uh, so he's the, he's the source of all. So man is a source, uh, that Christ is a source of every man. The point is not that Christ is not the source of woman, because Christ is also the source of woman. The, the point is, that men were disrespecting their source by letting their hair down in leading in prayer and in prophecy. We know it's disrespectful because we have about 100 passages, all cited by Herder uh, in his Real Lexicon for Antique and Christism, Effeminatus article, where long hair, effeminate long hair, is ridiculed uh, by these hundred, the largest number of authors from Paul's day. And they were disrespecting Christ, their source, by uh, praying with the long feminine hair, which was a solicitation for homosexual hookups in that day. We know that because of citations in the literature. They ridicule it. And the women, they were disrespecting their source man because when they let their hair down, which is what the main ads in the Dionysiac cult, which had its center in Corinth, and there's a temple to Dionysus in uh, Corinth is excavated. And uh, it, there's it, it, it's so much, but the, the point is that the whole argument is based on respect for one source. And women were disrespecting their, because when you let your hair down, that's a symbol of sexual freedom. Well, that disrespects your husband, uh, and it disrespects men to do that, and the men doing it. So it's, it's all an argument from source. So when Paul in Ephesians 5 says, <clears throat> for man is a source of woman, it's the same argument he's given in 1 Corinthians 11, arguing from source. And so he's saying that uh, a woman should submit, to you, you submit one to another, wives your own husbands, and then woman, he says, wives your own husbands, for 
man is a source of woman. It doesn't say hus the husband. There's no article there. Uh, and in almost every case where an error refers to husband, there's an article in the New Testament. For man is a source of woman, as Christ is the source of the church. He, the Savior of the body, who gave himself for her. So uh, if you look at the Liddell Scott Jones McKenzie lexicon, it lists 49 metaphorical equivalents for the word head in Greek. None of them mean authority, boss, leader, or anything related to them. Not one. When you, <clears throat> uh, when you look at Greek lexicons, even from the ninth century, lexicographers have identified head meaning source. And <clears throat> you have this in the, the lexical history. Uh, I, I could list a dozen lexicons of Greek, beginning with the 12th century, that have uh, the meaning source given. But it's, I have not found a single Greek non-Christian, <clears throat> non non-New Testament uh, lexicon that identifies any passage in Greek literature prior to the fourth century where the word head means leader or authority. Uh, but if I look at the BDAG, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, the standard New Testament lexicon, you read that entry and it lists three examples of from Greek literature where head means person and rank before, but none of them mean person and rank before. You look them up, they don't. Uh, that entire article is riddled with errors. <clears throat> he cites, for instance, uh, Fitzmaier. Uh, as saying that Kefale does not mean source, but the article it cites identifies Esau, and Fismar says Esau, the head of the whole creature, means source. And then the other article of Fitzmaier that they cite, Fitzmaier gives nine other examples where head means source. And I can, <clears throat> and a bunch of these examples where head means source. It's head, meaning source, with no sense of authority at all. Uh, the, uh, uh, my point is this, that our translation gives an impression of head that is so misleading uh, of, <clears throat> of the cases where Paul uses head in the New Testament, all but two, in context makes sense meaning source. And the other two mean apex or the top. Well, Dr. Payne, thank you so much for joining us and for everything that you shared, uh, all the rich uh, scriptural discussion that you provided in this episode. And we hope everyone will check out your book, The Bible Versus Biblical Womanhood. Well, thank you for the privilege of being on the podcast. It has been for me an amazing journey of discovery where I keep finding things uh, and being surprised by joy. Uh, so thank you for this opportunity. Mm -hmm.